This week's episode of Probably Science is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. To unlock a free month of unlimited access to all of their lectures, visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Probably Science. Hey everyone, welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. I am Andy Wood. Hey Andy. Hello Matthew. How's it going? It's, I am doing well. Excellent. We've, I'm just going to jump straight into the guests. Let's do it. Because, again, someone I, one of the first people I got to know out here when I first came out to America. We, were, we did a few shows together back in the day in LA. We were also just in Vegas together doing different shows. Uh, it is the very funny Katie Tatara. How's it going? Hello. Man? Yeah, I didn't realize that. Wow, I didn't realize I was one of the first people we met. That's I think cool. You wow. were because I feel like I've known you yeah. for about ten years. Yeah, yeah. No, I do remember you first coming out here. Like, yeah, and you just you weren't out here very long. So I guess I didn't realize I was that. I was still new. marveling at the colors and the foods. <laughs> <laughs> the fact yeah. that the food has color. Yeah. <laughs> That food thing is is for real. Yeah, I went to London like five years ago for the first time, and the, the food stereotype of it being worse there is. I, I feel will. Like, I, I I'm going to disagree with you on this one, Kay. I'm going to really? vehemently disagree. I think I think UK food has really sorted its shit out. And really, you can find maybe I went to the wrong places. Is, it, is can, it about like? I mean, if you're looking at the tail end of the bell curve, I'm sure, of course, like London is like one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the world. It's going to have great restaurants, but like. If you go so to the about, middle of that bell curve, do so you about think... the median food? I don't know. I think it's also a matter of what you grew up with because yeah, there's so much more junk food in America. That's true. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, I guess it depends on what you're talking about with what food you're looking at and what I'm thinking of when I just go to like a restaurant. You there. definitely still get though, particularly outside of the bigger cities in the UK. When I go back and tour, sometimes I'll, you will just go into a place and be like, "Oh, okay, I guess." I guess you do think that's a meal. <laughs> that's well, I feel like what a every, curious combination. Yeah, of- like every country also, I think, does their version of like, this is what a breakfast is, and then this is what a Western breakfast is. And it doesn't really line up to maybe that country if you ever go there. So like an American breakfast in London isn't really like an American breakfast you get here or whatever. No, it's yeah. just a bowl of cereal and a gun. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> it's a, hey, Katie, we like to ask our guests this before we get deep into the science Uh-oh. stories. Uh, what, if anything, is your background or in science? I uh, I follow some science uh, Twitter accounts. Uh, that's pretty qualified, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, fo- I follow a, you know, the, the Fermi Lab, the CERN, those things. Okay. I've, I've, I've been trying to keep tabs on... A, yeah, the particle accelerators. That's uh, that's it. I took 11th grade physics and got an A. Uh, that was 23 years ago. All right. <laughs> a little uh, teaser as well. I didn't, re- f- I didn't know Fermi Lab has a good Twitter account worth following, but we're going to hear a little bit about that later. Oh, Fermi really? Lab, yeah. I mean, I follow it. the yeah. scientists from it. There we go. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I try to keep tabs on the stories very vaguely. I don't, I have not done any college science anything like that which is completely fine yeah and, and, and the norm in this podcast so okay <laughs> i'm like sitting there trying to remember all the science words i know i'm like uh variables graph <laughs> it's like it's really limited right now but I, I don't know i got word it. cloud of like <laughs> pseudo yeah like a, yeah uh, i'm like t- uh, test, test tube there, there's a burner. p yeah. value and an n or something i don't know is that statistics I don't, i'm confusing yeah. my algebra i don't know <laughs> yeah like hurricane <laughs> i don't know what that what? is <laughs> is that a hurricane you start no. glass 
<laughs> You're just looking at things around the room, Kaiser Soze style. Yeah. Sort of barbershop quartet, Skokie, Illinois. Bridgetown yeah. poster. <laughs> I love lamp. <laughs> oh, there you go. Oh, man. I, now I'm thinking about movies, and uh, this is not related to anything, but I fucking haven't been this excited by a movie in a long time. I just saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood last night. We oh, haven't seen it. Yeah. I'm not going to spoil Spoiler anything. alert. It's great, though. I want to see so it. It's yeah. so goddamn good. I'm ready. And it's also pretty fun that like a bunch of it was shot a hundred feet from my office on the universe oh. a lot. So on my lunch break, like I memorized some of the buildings, like with the things written on them in the Western town. And oh, I was cool. like, I think that's right next to us. And then I went over on my lunch break today. I was like, yep, that's the building that says established 1835. Oh, cool. Yeah. Very fun. Uh, no spoilers, but if you don't already know some Manson backstory, go listen to, you must remember this, that movie podcast. Okay. They have a whole season. that's about Manson's Hollywood connections. If you listen to that first, which true was like an eight hour assignment and then go watch the movie. I think you'll like it even more. Uh, okay. Total detour. Just a fun, exciting movie. Have you seen any good ones this summer? Uh, I've seen, you know, I got the, uh, the AMC movie pass. So me and my girlfriend, we've been going to at least a couple movies a month to try to get use out of it. And, uh, cause we had the regular movie pass before like last year or whatever. And uh, we upgraded to the MC things. And yeah, you know what? I feel like I've seen so many. They're all just kind of, I don't even know what I've seen or not seen at this point. I've seen all like the superhero movies that came out yeah, and, uh, and then some other ones. I'm trying to decide right now if it's even worth it. I'm like, am I, would I see all these things? You know, cause I'm just going so yeah. much to make use of it. I'm like, I don't know if I'd really see this many movies. I, I, I did it when I had regular movie pass last year, mostly just to spite the company. Like I saw more movies <laughs> oh, than yeah. I wanted to see. Cause yeah, I'm like yeah. 10 bucks. I'm yeah. going to stick Really take guys. advantage. Yeah. And then three months in, they were already falling apart. Yeah. The, the app didn't go work. See Slender Man yeah. on a Tuesday. Yeah, Sherman yeah. Oaks if you want. But uh, if you go to the alleyway, a man will describe a <laughs> Film to you. Yeah, yeah. You're just like oh, looking in the window. <laughs> movie pass. Yeah. It was like if Ralph Wiggum decided to be. <laughs> I'm a disruptor. <laughs> I th- someone was telling me. I try to remember whether it was a podcast or a TV series that takes apart bad companies and where they screwed up. Oh, and movie man. pass was one of them. That I, I really want to hear that if it's a podcast. Yeah, that sounds yeah. good. It's like you could do. I'm sure you could do like a. Um, what's the movie called about? Um, Ther- not Theranos. Wait, Th- which Thanos or Theranos? Which one's Theranos? Oh, Theranos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one is the uh, comic book baddie, and one uh, is the real life baddie. Yeah, Theranos. Yeah, Theranos sure. is the utterly implausible. <laughs> yeah, again, the it's the Ralph McWiggum of, of... <laughs> yeah, the movie pass of medicine. God, again, it's fascinating. Mo- mo- we've talked about movie pass. Know, it has very keep, little to do with the science, uh, but it does uh, just arithmetically. <laughs> just the very at uh, the most simple mathematical level an utterly unsustainable like, model so yeah. you guys have worked out a deal where you're not paying full price for the tickets right oh no no we're paying full price for the tickets <laughs> like what <laughs> so how where does the money come from we'll figure that out later <laughs> it was the craziest yeah. yeah i don't know what their plan was there i mean it, yeah it's like Zero everybody plan. is gonna get on movie pass it's like cool and then you're still not going to be making any yeah. money like you're losing even more money yeah. yeah yeah it's like all right all right i've got a i've got a competitor to all these food delivery services what is this for 15 dollars a month you can eat as much food as you like from any restaurant <laughs> in town and we will send a person to that restaurant to order the food drive it to you yeah that's that's pretty much and what they thought 
Once we get enough investors, <laughs> it's got to work. Jesus. Well, they really thought that movie data would be super valuable, I guess, you know? Oh, yeah, that's what it was going to be, is eventually they would sell... Yeah, like the, the studio would be like, look, yeah. these people really like going at 2 o'clock on Saturdays. Not not that valuable information, really, <laughs> turns out. We did get, while well, we are talking about movies, that one of our listeners... Oh, good God, this... I've just managed to close the window rather than <laughs> with all of Where the information were you going? the armageddon email if you want to oh pick it yeah up from there. yeah um right uh listener christopher cooper sent us um a, an article about all the things that armageddon the movie gets wrong which obviously there are a ton i mean it's not trying for accuracy but um according to this article I, i'm trying to find a secondary source for this but uh so I guess NASA shows the movie Armageddon to its management training hirees and have them pick out all the inaccuracies in order to get hired. I want I want a second source on that because that seems like a, a great story, but I doubt it and I can't find a verification of it. But um, we can at least link to this article that spends some time uh, getting into the 15 main problems with Armageddon. Um, some of which include the fact that, uh, yeah, they, they crash land on the asteroid and there's... Wait, this is Armageddon, this is the Bruce Willis, right. Ben Affleck. Yeah, we mentioned yeah. it last week. Oh, okay. We yeah, mentioned yeah. it and a lot over the years. We have mentioned it many, many times. <laughs> but yeah, one of the many things is that when the ship crashes, um, there's a fire and obviously there's no atmosphere in an asteroid, so there can't be any fire. So in a near perfect vacuum, <laughs> you wouldn't even get a spark. But yeah, whatever. I mean, yes, science fiction movies always play with like, yeah, no one wants to hear a planet hear nothing happen when a pl- yeah yeah that's like the whole thing with like star wars or whatever there wouldn't be all these sounds and stuff yeah. or whatever right but then it's like yeah imagine watching that just like a, <laughs> a deafening silence like like an art house star wars <laughs> yeah i'm just like wow yeah i think i'm good with with the fake um let's see what else the size of the asteroid coming from earth is quote the size of texas or roughly four hundred thousand square kilometers why would it be in area measurements anyway uh, an impact of that size would vaporize the entire Pacific Ocean nearly instantly. The plasma gener- generated after that would s- would sterilize the entire planet within 30 seconds or less. Uh, um, Bruce Willis is an actor <laughs> and not a minor. That's one of the errors there. Crazy. The spacesuits everyone's wearing would have to have thrusters to keep them on the surface of the asteroid. Uh, it makes sense. Not enough gravity. Um... Let's just, should well, I just, this movie was made in like 1998 or something, well, it's like right? They didn't know back then. It's just a different yeah, well, you know, production. You know, all the money in Hollywood was going to Matrix or something at the time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it would have been like a year before the Matrix. It was somewhere around there, right? I don't know what year is it. Oh, yeah, I want to say 99 was somewhere around there. Let's do a magnet story that Eric Boisvert sent in. Sure. So it's oh, a God. lab accident story. Oh, is it a happy lab accident? It is a happy lab oh, accident that's a good, story. My favorite kind of lab accident. In a lab accident story. Scientists have created the first ever permanently magnetic liquid and a monster that shall enslave man. <laughs> I feel like uh, they should have stopped after the first of those. Well, you have one of happy accidents and you just keep going, yeah. you know? God. What's wrong? Uh, you have a computer issue? I'm having multiple computers. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you don't want to mention the fact that we have that very kindly <laughs> you're on a dial-up over there right 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 it's the, a, i'm on the laptop that's very kindly donated by one of our listeners 
but it is an older laptop and it has very confusing controls. I mean, I can't tell for certain the date of it, but there are many stickers on it that were put there by its previous owner. And the one I'm looking at right now has South by Southwest 2011. So I know it's at least an eight-year-old laptop. <laughs> or That's not true. You could have put an old sticker on a recent laptop. Yep. But, it's uh, got one of the stickers is Impeach Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> are you able to get it to load or not? No, I've got it. I've okay. got it back again. So for the first time, scientists have created a permanently magnetic liquid. These liquid droplets can morph into various shapes and be externally manipulated to move around, according to a new study. That's a T-1000 right there. There we go. We typically imagine magnets as being solid, said senior author Thomas Russell, who is a distinguished professor of polymer science and engineering at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. By the way... Distinguished. Yeah, it's distinguished part of... His official title, or is it just... Is that editorializing? It wasn't capitalized. I was like, did he... It's like when a comic calls themselves controversial. Like, I don't think you get to say that you're controversial. Crowned himself. A distinguished professor. Hmm. Okay. Of polymer science. But now we know... Yeah, does that mean he serves brandy? (laughs) He's always got an ascot. Salt and pepper in his hair. Mm -hmm. He's got a vest. (laughs) Always has a vest on something snazzy like mm. and he has a quip for every occasion yeah. <laughs> uh, but now we know we can make magnets that are liquid and they can conform to different shapes and those shapes are really up to you these liquid droplets can change from a shape from a sphere to a cylinder to a pancake to a terminator he told life science oh. i added the last bit yeah. the pancake the terminator's in there <laughs> we can even make it look like a sea urchin if we want did well thinking small there Distinguished professor. I think I've seen that when it's just like that ferromagnetic uh, liquid that isn't actually a... Right? When they... Yeah. You've seen what I'm talking about, right? Yes, yeah. Sea I know urchin you, looking I know what you mean. of liquid. Uh, but here we go. We're yeah. about to get into one okay. of our favorite topics because he says, Russell and his team created these liquid magnets by accident when experimenting with 3D printing liquids at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, where Russell is also a visiting faculty scientist. A and distinguished, distinguished visiting yeah, faculty scientist. <laughs> The goal was to create materials that are solid but have characteristics of liquids for various energy applications. One day, postdoc student and lead author Zubo Liu noticed 3D printed material made from magnetized particles called iron oxides spinning around in unison on a magnetic stir plate. So when the team realized the entire construct, not just the particles, had become magnetic, they decided to investigate further. Using a technique to 3D print liquids, the scientists created millimeter-sized droplets from water, oil, and iron oxides. The liquid droplets keep their shape because of some of the iron oxide particles bind with surfactants, which are substances that reduce the surface tension of a liquid. Like soap does with oil and water. Um... The surfactants create a fi- film around the liquid water, with some iron oxide particles creating part of the filmy barrier, and the rest of the particles enclosed inside, says Russell. Okay, so you get these sort of droplets that are... If, if I remember rightly from chemistry at school, the way oil... The way soap kind of bonds with oil and water is it's got two part... What is it? There's... One part is hydrophobic and one part is hydrophilic of the m- molecule. Oh, that does sound familiar now. Yeah. So one one side of the molecule bonds with the water and the other side repels it or and bonds with the other stuff. Uh-huh. So the two together kind of break up the water and makes an emulsion is my memory of it. 
Yeah, I'm. I'm. I can picture some Mr. Wizard stuff that I, I was just going to say, Mr. Wizard, when you put the pepper in the water and yeah, the sink, and then yeah, they put the thing in the yeah. middle, and it kind of goes, whoosh, yeah, and like disperses. Exactly. What was Mr. Wizard a TV show, or was there a guy who oh, played a character called Mr. Wizard? Both. I mean, within the TV show. I mean, he didn't call him. I don't think he was asking you not to say that his name was Don Herbert. It was Don Herbert, but okay. But he would have kids over, and it was in the fifties in black and white. Then he came back. So again. he wasn't like, "Call me Don, Mister Wizard is my father's right. name." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he did a reboot in the eighties on, I guess, Nickelodeon, right? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah. So he had like, so my dad grew up with him, and then I grew up with him. Okay. Like, oh, I didn't like, realize it was lie. that old. Oh, no. Yeah, he had. He, there's black and white stuff in the fifties or sixties. You can see. Oh, him. yeah. Yeah, I just knew the eighties thing. I didn't know that. Well, it's like Bill Nye having his sort of second career, like. 25 years later oh, when was okay. Bill Nye in his prime mid 90s yeah early mid 90s like something like that yeah. yeah yeah. so once they've got these sort of droplets the team then placed the millimeter sized droplets near a magnetic coil to magnetize them but when they took the coil away the droplets just demonstrated an unseen behavior in liquids they remained magnetized magnetic liquids called ferrofluids do exist but these liquids are only magnetized when they're in the presence of a magnetic field and those are the ones I've I've seen that can make like a C or any shape when they're right. over a permanent magnet. Yeah. So mm. this is a very different thing. This is something that can actually retain its magnetism. Yeah. When these droplets approach the magnetic field, the tiny iron oxide particles are all aligned in the same direction. And once they remove the field, the iron oxide particles bound to the surfactant in the film were so jam-packed, they couldn't move and so remained aligned. But those free floating inside the droplet also remained aligned. The scientists don't fully understand how these particles hold on to the field, said Russell. Once they figure it out, there are many potential applications. For example, Russell imagines printing a cylinder with a non-magnetic middle and two magnetic caps. The two ends will come together like a horseshoe magnet and be used as a mini-grabber. Mm. In an even more bizarre application, here we go. Imagine a mini-liquid person, a smaller-scale <laughs> version of the liquid T-1000 from the second Terminator movie, not, said Russell. Yes, here we go. this. Now imagine that parts of these mini-liquid men are magnetized and other parts aren't. An external magnetic field could then force the little person to move its limbs like a marionette. A murderous marionette. Oh, no. For me, it sort of represents a new state of magnetic material, said Russell. The findings were published on July 19th in the journal Science. I don't know about the closing statement for the whole article to have the, the words sort of in it sort of like takes the wind out of his sails <laughs> after this whole thing. For me, it or sort something. of represents yeah. a sort of you know, the kind of state of magnetic materials. Yeah, it ends <laughs> with a question mark. <laughs> Distinguished up talking scientist <laughs> Thomas Russell. It be like that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, this magnet is everything. Why wow, that's so scary that he says like, then you can control it like a marionette or whatever. It's like, oh man, yeah, this is the precursor, and then it becomes you know self-aware and it realizes you're sitting there playing with it. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I don't want to fuck with liquid metal. I mean, with liquid magnet, dudes. <laughs> oh no. Why haven't we... Re- as soon as that connects to the internet. All of our ways. Is the T-1000 coming back for the new Terminator? I haven't really read much besides... I think there the is Hamilton. a T-1000, and then there's another one. It's a T-2000 or something. 
Okay, you think 3, they, would, they would go like Andre style and skip past the year that's <laughs> yeah. coming up? Like, well, there, yeah, I don't know. Well, there was the 3,000 and the 5,000, <laughs> but now they're pretending that didn't exist. But that's what I hate. They always design them with planned obsolescence so that <laughs> you true. get your T-1000 and then a couple of years later it just stops working. Yeah. It, just, <laughs> it gets really slow. There's a software update. I always yeah. turn down the updates on my T-1000. Yeah. It can't chase cars anymore. Yeah. It's just like walking behind the car and eventually like, oh, fuck you, you, you bricked <laughs> Skynet. My, you bricked my Robert Patrick. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't keep up with the lingo. It's just saying old slang. It's like, ah, oh, dude, yeah, you look like my pops, but, you know, you're not keeping up with it. <laughs> bodacious? I mean, come on. Come on, get the language update, dude. <laughs> Download it. <laughs> Speaking of which, you've even, just got some question marks where some of the sent emotions are. <laughs> even the it's stuff like, oh. that Edward Norton or no, Edward Furlong had Arnold learn in Terminator Two was already so not like kid speak. It's obviously written by James Cameron. It's like, and then you want to say "hasta la vista, baby." It's like, what do you want? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, Who said no, that? No one says that. <laughs> hasta la vista. You know. Like the kids do when they're on their yacht. Yeah. <laughs> when they're... <laughs> fucking yachting You skateboarders. know, when they're, when, they're th- when they're saying, you know, why not just order a couple of extra appetizers at Margaritaville? <laughs> Having said that, I am very excited for another Terminator that actually involves the original... I love Terminator, stuff. man. Yeah. I'm all into it. I like all of them. Everyone shits on the last one and thing. I like all of them. I don't even care. I like the whole thing. I like trying to figure out the timelines of all of them. Right. I've like watched all the videos. I've like I've just sat there for a while and just wrote my own timelines I've, for no reason. <laughs> and just like just trying to make sense of it. I'm like, well, well, well maybe, maybe this is where the T5000 came from. Yeah, I'm trying to remember when I first got really bothered with t- time travel in movies. It's probably just Back to the Future. Even just then, I was like, wait, huh? huh? Like, once you get to the point that you're. The bootstrap paradox thing, like no one can ever get around it, and then they also always have to make up like here's here's the world the rules for our dumb universe. Yeah, that, there's multiple like, rules. Yeah, yeah the bootstrap paradox is you can't sort of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Is that what it is? Yeah, or I mean, like as soon as you, the fundamental thing is like, what if you just went back in time and destroyed the time machine before you got in it? Well, then you never went back and and you never went back and destroyed it. So then you did, then they didn't, then you did like. Was it like the Very grandfather's pa- paradox thing or something? I, mean, kind of, I think like they're similar? all kind of the same paradox. Why like, is it always the grandfather paradox? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, go back and kill your grandfather. Like, what about just killing your dad or killing... <laughs> like, why has it got to be the grandpa, like, specifically? It's like, wouldn't it be the same thing if you killed your dad or your mom or anybody else? Yeah. You know, like, the guy who delivered you or something? He yeah. knows what he did. <laughs> there's the dilemma about if you killed Hitler, then he wouldn't have become Hitler. So then you'd just be... I forgot which comic has the joke about it. Well, if you yeah. killed Hitler, then there would never be a Hitler, so you wouldn't, or we wouldn't even know the name Hitler. Is it? Like, yeah, we would. We'd know him as the the only baby to ever have been killed by a time traveler. <laughs> you know, <Hitler>. right? <laughs> the reference would be completely yeah. different. That's the, the person who came out of space with <laughs> baby must have done something. Jesus. <laughs> Someone else's joke. I forgot who. I wouldn't be surprised if it's like. Dan Mintz. I feel like that's most of the jokes I quote in life. <laughs> that's funny. Um, I just put at the top of this document a story that was sent in by Holly Gabrielson of Los Angeles, California. I know a Holly Gabrielson from Los Angeles. Weird, right? Yeah. Uh, this is a new CRISPR story. We had a CRISPR story last Ooh, week. CRISPR Cast Night. I've heard of that. Mm. I've been following that. Crispy. So CRISPR, the gene editing tool, for the first time has been used in humans to treat patients with genetic disorders. 
uh, it was specifically someone with sickle cell disease. Hmm. By the way, do you ever listen to Pete Holmes's podcast? Uh, I have listened to it. Do you know that he has like a slogan, if you will, or a motto or a thing he says at the end? No, I don't. And I'm wondering if we should have our, he says, keep it crispy. <laughs> should we, should we start saying keep, keep it crisper? crisper? Keep it crisp. I don't that, think we should. No. Okay. Well, we just did. That's too bad. I can't edit that out. It's happening. We, they, we don't happened? have editing technology nope. yet. <laughs> it does not. I went back in time and destroyed editing. <laughs> Oh, although it actually says you went back in Tim and destroyed yeah. anything. <laughs> it's fucking awesome. <laughs> so, yes, for the first time, doctors in the U.S. have used the powerful gene editing technique called CRISPR to try to defeat a patient with a genetic... I'm sorry. No. <laughs> defeat? No, they didn't defeat. Edit- editing has been removed. Whoa, no, this is no editing. editing this. I didn't know that much about the Marvel yes. Universe, but... Uh... <laughs> we must defeat this woman <laughs> with sickle cell. This patient needs defeation. It's not a noun. Um, try to treat a patient with a genetic disorder. It's just amazing how far things have come, says Victoria Gray, 34, of Forest, Mississippi. It is wonderful, she told NPR in an exclusive interview after undergoing the landmark treatment for sickle cell disease. Gray is the first patient ever to be publicly identified as being involved in a study testing, excuse me, study testing, testing the use of CRISPR for genetic disease. I always had hoped that something will come along, she says, from a hospital bed at the Sarah Cannon Research Institute in Nashville, where she received an infusion of billions of genetically modified cells. It's a good time to get healed. But it will probably take months, if not years, of careful monitoring of Gray and other patients before doctors know whether the treatment is safe and how well it might be helping patients. So, yeah, sickle cell affects millions of people around the world. About 100,000 are in the U.S., and uh, most of them, like Gray, are African-American. A genetic defect causes bone marrow to produce a defective protein that makes blood cells that are sickle-shaped hard and sticky. The deformed cells get stuck inside blood vessels and don't carry oxygen normally, causing a host of debilitating and often life, eventually life-shortening complications. So for this study, doctors are using cells taken from the patient's own bone marrow that have been genetically modified with CRISPR to make them produce a protein that is usually only made by fetuses and babies for a short time following birth. The hope is this protein will compensate for the defective protein that causes sickle cell disease and will enable patients to live normally for the rest of their lives. Dr. David Altshuler. 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 Old school. From... I think that literally means old school. I think German. It, I think you're right. Yeah. I think it does. Maybe. Old something. Old school. It's <laughs> very exciting, says That's Dr. That's the new Olsen. remake. They're yeah. going to call it that. <laughs> Dr. Old school. <laughs> it's exciting to see that we may be on the cusp of a highly effective therapy for patients with sickle cell, says David Old School, who's the executive VP, global research and chief scientific officer at Vertex Pharmaceuticals. That definitely sounds like a fake bad guy company. It really in a does. Comic book movie. <laughs> We're here at Vertex headquarters. <laughs> it's definitely yeah, a cover up for something. It's like fuck yeah, it, I'm just going to try it on myself and jinx yeah. it into his arm. <laughs> yeah. Is that like a Dr. Octopus or something? Yeah. Or it's like everybody. Isn't that what yeah. the, the uh, Green Goblin? Yeah, yeah. His blood cells are too round. <laughs> <laughs> he has too much energy. Oh, yeah. We talked on a previous podcast about the reason it's uh, sort of linked to West African descent is it, sickle cell trait evolved. Or to malaria help. or something. Yeah, like that, to yeah. Keep your, to be more immune to malaria or something. Yeah. So CRISPR Therapeutics, who also conducted the study, announced the treatment of the first volunteer on Monday, but didn't name them. But NPR, whose article we're reading here, got exclusive access to Gray. Oh, look at NPR. Yeah, exclusive. People with sickle cell disease, says Altshula, have been waiting a long time for therapies that just let them live a normal life. Dr. Haydar Frangul, 
who's medical director of pediatric hematology and oncology at the Institute where Gray volunteered, said this is a very big deal. This could benefit very many patients. They are. Yeah. Other doctors, scientists, and bioethicists are also encouraged. There's an exciting moment in medicine, uh, says, God damn. Lori Zoloff? Yeah, you're going to have to take over. A bioethicist I... <laughs> at University of Chicago? Yes, she says CRISPR promises the capacity the to alter the human is, uh... genome. <laughs> yeah, literally went out of steam. Yeah. <laughs> just, i got to put on a kettle now. Uh, yes, this offers us the capacity to alter the human genome and to begin to directly address genetic diseases. But Zoloff is also, cautious. Zoloff is also cautious. Say that five times fast. Zoloth is also cautious. She worries that this and other studies starting up using CRISPR haven't gone through an extra layer of scrutiny by a panel of outside experts assembled by the NIH. It's brand new technology. It seems to work really well in animals and really well in culture dishes. It's completely unknown how it works in actual human beings. So there are a lot of unknowns. It might make you sicker. Thanks. Thanks, Zoloth. Oh, I bet she works for Vertex. Uh, this whole time, I was like, man, this is awesome. This is so cool. I mean, because that, that disease is really tough. I had a friend in college that had sickle cell. And, and yeah, it's 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 really bad. Like, it's it's really difficult sometimes. What, so. were, what was your friend's symptoms? I mean, yeah, sometimes, like, he couldn't come into work sometimes. And then he'd just be, like, you know, super tired and he'd get sick and stuff. And, you know, I mean, I don't even know all the specifics and stuff. Yeah. But I just know something. He just, like, couldn't come in. And he'd be gone for a long time. And and then come back and you know and this is why we were in college and stuff and so yeah we just Oof. felt bad for him because it was just like man this seems like you know a tough break and yeah. uh, it's hard to live with so if anyway you can kind of cure that man like that's that's awesome but then i guess that the problem is with the gene editing is you don't know if you're introducing because you're solving this one thing then there's like a chain reaction that somewhere else i guess right starts a different disease or cancer or some other kind of problem i guess they just but they don't know until they've done this for a certain amount of time right yeah i didn't realize uh, reading further in this article a lot of people with sickle cell disease don't live past their 40s i didn't know it was that wow yeah it's pretty rough uh, but it said uh, the person who got this treatment, she was diagnosed when she was an infant and started crying during a bath because, yeah, one major symptom is agonizing, debilitating pain. Yeah. God. That's rough. Well, I hope this works out and doesn't have side effects, obviously. That would be great. Keep it crisper. See? It's happening, man. It's catching on. I've just said it twice. That's yeah, a bumper sticker type thing. I think, yeah. Get it on there. Get on the T-shirts. Uh, you, know, you know what else is debilitating? Potentially. CRISPR. A giant... nowhere. How about that? Can we make it that? Okay. Oh. Done. All right. All right. That's happening. A giant radiation leak. Ooh. Guess guess where it's been traced to. The A 2017 giant radiation leak was it that Vertex... was swept across Europe in... Vertex uh, com- Laboratories? It was, <laughs> it was not. But... <laughs> do, do, do you want to take a wild guess at which country might where, be behind a giant radiation leak that where, swept across Europe in 2017? Where in the world this might have happened? A place that might have had some uh, HBO-worthy shenanigans in the 80s? Yep. Is this somewhere where Bruce Willis went and one of his diehards? Oh, did he? Ever, did he go there on a diehard? Is it somewhere that produced a, a, a super fighter boxer who... Uh, <laughs> Rocky Balboa <laughs> took down, even though he didn't have access to yeah, the it's like the high last, quality training. The last die, die Hard fight. I mean, it's not really a Die Hard movie, but I mean, technically, there's it's, a fifth Die Hard. I think, it, yeah, it's five or six. What are we on? Five? Yeah. I'm guessing it involves Russia. Yeah. Okay, that is where. It, yeah, yes. Jai Jai Courtney is all. Is it Jai? Hi, Jai Courtney. Who's that? He's uh, he was also in the Terminator. Uh, played Kyle Reese in the. The last time Terminator came out. 
Russia. Russia oh, is yeah, the country that was behind. <laughs> Russia is the country uh, has been traced to a Russian nuclear facility, which appears to have been prepping materials for experiments in Italy. I don't know whether this was with or without Italy's permission. Hmm. The leak released up to 100 times the amount of radiation into the atmosphere that the Fukushima disaster did. Blimey. Italian scientists were the first to raise the alarm on the 2nd of October when they noticed a burst of the radioactive ruthenium-106. I did not know ruthenium is an element. Uh, is This is... That quick- was uh, discovered by Ruth Buzzy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is quickly corroborated by other monitoring labs across Europe. George Steinhauser at Leibniz University in Hanover says he was stunned when he first noticed the event. Routine surveillance detected several... Oh, sorry, detects several radiation leaks every year. However, mostly are extremely low levels of radionuclides used in medicine, but this event was different. The ruthenium-106 was one of a kind, says Steinhauser. We had never measured anything like this before. Even so, the radiation level wasn't high enough to impact human health in Europe, although exposure closer to the site of release would have been far greater. The... Institute for Radio Protection and Nuclear Security in Paris soon concluded that the most probable source of the leak was between the Volga River and Ural Mountains in Russia. This is where Russia's Mayak facility is located. The site, which includes a plant that processes spent nuclear fuel, suffered the world's third most nuclear serious nuclear accident in 1957. They're really filling out the top ten there, aren't they? (laughs) Well, what are the... I'm guessing Chernobyl is number one. Is Three Mile Island the second one? I don't know. Where does Fukushima rank? Oh, and I'm then sorry. there's like Sellafield. Must be second, right? Yeah. What See is if there's a listicle? Of Surely, <laughs> serious. Also, how do you classify most serious? I, I mean, the, are you uh, talking about like amount of radiation into the air, into the water? How much stuff was like meltdown? I guess. It's, yeah. How slow motion the people who shouted. No! How many people died? Yeah. Let's go to BuzzFeed for the <laughs> craziest <laughs> radiation accidents. <laughs> Uh, no, what not. type of radiation radiation are accident are you? <laughs> I'm a Miranda. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, the 1957 one was. Uh, well, yeah, what do you want? Number of dead, cost in in millions of U.S. dollars, or INES level? What's I? What does INES stand for? The, the listeners are going to find out as I do. <laughs> so hey, does the N stand for nuclear? Yes. Okay. Go okay. Ahead. So international nuclear. It's actually pretty intuitive, if you want. Estimates of suckiness? Sure. (laughs) Basically. International nuclear... We're talking about all these things. Environmental. You could call call these things what, generically? Happenings or... Uh, This isn't fun, Event. Uh, Yes, event. It is. (laughs) All right. International nuclear event scale. Oh, okay. So it was introduced in 1990, and uh, it goes from one, which is just anomaly, two is incident, three, serious incident... Four, accident with local consequences. Five, accident with wider consequences. Mm. Six, serious accident. <laughs> Seven, major accident. <laughs> These adjectives are still sort of... Yeah, I think they could have kept it to four there. <laughs> yeah, so it goes from zero to seven. And uh, Fukushima is actually a seven, as is Chernobyl. So. Wow. Okay. And then after that comes the 1957 one you mentioned in Russia. Okay, so is, is Chernobyl above or below Fukushima? It must be above. They're both sevens on this scale, okay. which doesn't have a lot of granularity, but... Um, the cost of Fukushima was... Oh, no. The cost of Chernobyl was higher. And the death count of direct deaths and indirect Chernobyl was higher. And Emmy nominations. Sure, yeah. Uh, and then the Russian one you mentioned is a six out of this scale. And then everything else below there is, is five and lower, including oh, Three Mile God. Island is a five. Where does Sellafield rank? Is that on there? 
How do you spell Sellafield? S E L L A Field. What's that? I didn't even know. Oh, that I'm one. sorry. Yeah, that's that's equal footing with Three Mile Island. Yeah, that's a UK one. Oh no! In the fifties. Yeah, there are three that have been fives. Three of them that have been ranked five: the uh, Sellafield, Three Mile Island, and. Um, Dude, keep those magnetic liquid things away from wherever this nuclear thing. All you need those things to combine, and we're going to have some angry magnetic superhero. Yeah. Surprisingly, on this list, only, let's see, only about six of these, like 30 or so incidents I'm looking at, caused any deaths at all. Although I guess you can't really tell about indirect ones. But um, And it's a huge drop-off. After Chernobyl, the next highest one only has four deaths associated with it. Which I guess is sort of heartening as far as nuclear safety goes. I don't know. Anyway, you were saying uh, Russia. I'm trying to find actually what happened at Sellafield because I remember it being a thing. Oh, yeah, I know of it being a thing. Uh, anyway, so where where were we? Gigantic Russian problem. So <laughs> at the time of the 2017 link, Russian officials denied, weirdly, hmm, the possibility of the facility being the source, saying there were no radioactive ruthenium traces in the surrounding soil. <laughs> Off-brand, Instead, okay. they suggested the source may have been a radioactive nuclear-type battery from a satellite burning up during its re-entry. Sorry, radionuclear-type battery. Uh, Steinhauser and his colleagues decided to investigate more thoroughly by forensically analyzing 1,300 measurements from hundreds of monitoring stations across Europe. They found radiation levels in the atmosphere were between 30 and 100 times higher than those measured after Fukushima, which is, according to Steinhauser, quite alarming. The team excluded Romania as the source of the incident, despite the country's high radiation levels. Generally high radiation levels? I didn't know that. (laughs) Background. Is that because of all the Draculas? I guess that's true. There's so many Draculas now. <laughs> so we all know that Draculas are radioactive. That's how they. That's how they keep their vitamin D, despite not being getting sunlight. It probably would work, wouldn't it? But the team excluded Romania. Each stat station in the country detected the radioactive plume simultaneously, which indicated the source is far enough away for it to be, for it to have grown to the width of Romania. They also excluded a satellite as the cause because space organizations didn't report any missing at the time. The pattern of... Although, maybe they were also lying. Mm. The pattern of radiation through the atmosphere didn't match the spread of radiation from a satellite's re-entry either. All right, there we go. Combining these findings with information on air movements and concentration levels from monitoring data, the team found clear evidence that the release happened in the southern Urals, which is where the Mayak nuclear facility is located. The leak is unusual because the release was limited to radioactive ruthenium. If there is a reactor accident, says continues Steinhauser, one would accept the release of radioactive isotopes of many different elements. But exactly why such a specific element was released remained a mystery until Steinhauser learned that an Italian nuclear research facility had ordered a consignment of cerium-144 from Mayak before the incident. There are several indications that the release of ruthenium-106 was linked to this order. I don't know. I guess, I'm guess i guessing that cerium-144 um, at some point degrades to... Degrade's not the right word. Um, God damn it. I can't think of the word either. Decay. There we go. Yeah. Decay. Thank you. Decays to ruthenium-106. Nice. Um, That's my guess anyway. To sum up, can we continue to distrust Russia? Is that still a safe opinion to have right now? Yeah, that's a pretty big oopsie. Uh, <laughs> I like that's, that's the one sort of prejudice that everyone can get on board for these days. It's like, it's pretty okay to be like, just outwardly anti-Russia. 
<laughs> right? Well, What's the downside? I mean, it is weird in science because we still have to rely. They, they take everybody. If you've gotten to the International Space Station in the last 10, 20 years, it's been on a Russian rocket. So oh. we have this working relationship with them for that purpose. And then they're still undermining our democracy. Well, well the, the weird thing is that there is still collaboration across theoretically hostile nation lines. Yeah. It is bizarre that the ISS is still working out in this era where there's such a breakdown in trust. It's crazy that, you know, they're going to sit there and try to lie about this stuff where it's like you're lying to the scientists who use science to figure out when and where this stuff came from. So it's like, you're not going to go, no, 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 it was, it was, uh, fell from sky. It was that. <laughs> no, that's not, don't, no, yeah. no, it wasn't us. It was that, that thing. It fell. It had lots of radiation. No, no. And like, what, what are you going to like? Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. My bad. We, we detected it came from over there using all our instruments, but we're wrong. Sure. It's a common misconception in science. Oh, that's it is. Speaking of I, common misconceptions in science. I say that. Andy and I have been doing some more learning. Yeah. We're doing some more learning on account of our awesome sponsor. That you, would be The Great Courses Plus. It is. A few of you have written to us to say you've already got on board. I, I cannot recommend this enough. This is such a cool sponsor. We're so happy about this. But the Great Courses Plus is a way for just one single subscription fee. You can have access to hundreds, nay, thousands of college-level courses taught by leading people in their fields on everything across, not just science, although we've yeah. just focused on the science things, but you could do anything. You could learn calligraphy. There's you could learn... Music, um, there is... Uh, yeah, there's, yeah. there's yeah, I saw some quite cool like music composition things. If I was more of a muso, then... Yeah, I, I, I dipped my, dip my toe into uh, um, uh, the mathematics of music theory one for a little bit. It's very interesting. And, That's the thing. Uh, you can dabble, you can jump around, or you can deep dive into one of the courses. This week, we have been diving into Understanding the Misconceptions of Science. That one is taught by Don Lincoln of Fermilab. Am I correct in that? Yeah, you are. He's a senior scientist at Fermilab, the actual Fermilab. Don Lincoln, PhD. He's a, That's the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory. And yeah, this is a great lecture series if you're interested in the kind of things we've talked about on this podcast a lot things that people think they know about science but don't actually like the whole did ben franklin uh fly a kite to discover electricity uh spoiler alert no he didn't he but didn't. also there's a there's a great um deep dive into the physics of of flight this I think, one i love i love this particular would you call it an episode uh I individual mean, module sure there are 24 approximately half hour lectures within a course is that probably the uh, yeah and and you can listen to them or watch them you can jump between formats so you can be listening to it like a podcast when you're driving along and then you can get home and switch to watching it on your laptop or your phone or even your sort of roku or kindle or, or fire stick or whatever or uh, apple tv you and it picks up exactly where it left off but yeah this is a great sort of starts off with a debunking of the theory the th- People's misconception of the term theory, which we talked a lot about. Yeah, right? and, but then it goes into that, mm. uh, the flying one, it goes into sort of the hand wavy, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. this is how a, a wing works, which is not true. The the very basic sort of Bernoulli version of like, oh, the air goes over quicker over the top of them. The body. Which is disproved as soon as you see a plane fly upside down. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and also when you just think about the way that the two different airflows would meet at different speeds and all things would go wrong but what is actually happening and then he goes deep into the actual equations and the science of it 
and does this with a whole bunch. What's inside atoms? It's another great one in the course. Uh, there's nutrition, misconceptions about evolution, evolution which I, I love. Anyway, this is college level learning for an incredibly low single price, and even yeah. lower if you sign up through us. Yeah, if you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably, you'll get a free month of access to any and all of these, so you can just like skip around, see what you like, and there'll be a lot there that you will, I'm sure. This I, is, uh, I honestly don't know why you wouldn't do this. Just at the very least, try the free month and see how it goes. So go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. And, and, and yeah, write to us and let us know what you've been listening to because I want to uh, listen to and watching. Cause I want- yeah, if you've got any recommendations, if you signed up and you started jumping around, and you're like, this course is a really great one. Let us know because we, we have access right now and I'd like to know while I'm yeah. driving around. I'd like to hear about ones you've enjoyed. So write to us. Tell us you've been enjoying it. Tell us what you've been up to. Once again, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably and you get a free month through us. Check it out. Did you guys see that uh, that that new uh, UFO documentary out? I guess it's not new. It's like it's an old that guy from the '80s, Bob something or whatever. But they put Bob Lazar, and I I, I vaguely remember this as a kid. And then I don't know. They Does they this have something to do with people like aren't people protesting outside of Area 51 right now? Well, yeah, that What's... meme or something I think came out of all of that. But this guy claims to have worked at Area 51, called it S4 saw some like anti-gravity space technology that he doesn't know how old it is maybe they've had it for a really long time worked there for a little bit and then just stopped working there whatever kind of and honestly he comes off to me like he's he really believes what he says i don't know if that means he's like telling the truth but he's at least he he's coming off in a way that he seems to believe it now whether or not it actually is true i think is not necessarily that may, no, but that makes for a compelling watch, though. Yeah. Even if he's crazy, I want to see a crazy person he, who believes he, in their crazy shit. Yeah, so it comes off, I think, of the strongest crazy person I think I've ever watched. I'm like, this guy. And there was some part where he got hypnotized in, like, 89 or 90. And I'm almost thinking, like, what if that actually made him really believe it? Like, he was bullshitting before, and then he had a hypnotist. And, and I've always kind of been skeptical of the hypnotist things. But if maybe he somehow allowed himself to get hypnotized to the point where... Now he really does yeah. believe this happened, and, mm. and it did it. And now, so it's easier for him to go along with the story for forty years or thirty years or whatever it is. I guess. What's the guy's name? Bob Lazar. Bo- Bob Lazar and Area Fifty One, and and it's the only person that I've ever heard that comes across with that much of like sincerity or something. I don't know how to describe it. It's just like he comes off like the least. I mean, it's, it sounds wacky, but it comes off like the least amount of this guy's making something up. Yeah, but. I still, I'm, I don't know, I'm kind of, I'm skeptical of it. Just because the amount of other people would have to be involved for his story to be true, there would be somebody, out there, there'd be some amount of evidence popping up somewhere else by now. Well, that was, there was an, a really early story we covered on, like on one of, what, years back on the show, one of the early ones, um, where someone had actually calculated and quantified the average amount of time it would take for a conspiracy theory to be exposed as a relation oh, yeah. of the number of people involved in it. Oh, so, like, know, yeah, because they it, know people and they know people. It, yeah. Exactly, because it, it, it's been a common argument against conspiracy theories for years, which mm. which is just think about the number of people who have to keep it quiet. It's but like no one had actually sort of done the 
Or it's almost right, epi- the math. Yeah, yeah like, it's almost epidemiology. Kind of like what what's the proportion of each person yeah, giving the, away the secret? And like the longer, yeah. the the more people who know, the less likely it is that something will be kept secret for a certain amount of time. So right. Both the more people involved in it, and the longer the amount of time right. it's had to be a secret, the less l- plausible this conspiracy theory is. Right. Which is one of the things that makes the moon landing of all of the conspiracy <laughs> theories the most absurd because. Yeah. There were so many people involved at every stage of it, and it's been so long. Like, hundreds of thousands of people now would have had to have kept a secret for half a century. Right. And the yeah, that's 9- impossible. 9-11, if the people are right, then, like, they had a conspiracy that was huge, and they even let in, like, local news reporters on this thing. Like, why would you trust them? <laughs> right. Fucking keep the secret? That's Yeah, and, and with the moon landing, just the very sort of even... The people, the monitoring station in Australia, because there was a point of time that only that side of the Earth had the signal. Oh. Well, that's if you believe in, like, the Earth being round. (laughs) I mean, come on. I don't know about that. (laughs) Who's a a round earther and (laughs) denier? (laughs) I'm a flat earther, but we went to the moon. (laughs) You you believe in the moon? Um, But the number of people, yeah. Um, Hey, you, you... but yeah. wait, so I, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to do an ad hominem attack on Bob Lazar, but uh, a quick search for his credentials. <laughs> Again, it's, a, it's possible you could not have a, this doesn't mean he's definitely telling There's, a lie, <laughs> but let's just walk through the fact that he claims he earned a master's degree from MIT and uh, in physics and a master's in electrical technology from Caltech. There are no records of him attending either of those. Um he did take electronics courses in the late 70s at Pierce Junior College. Uh, Woodland Hills, come on, man. I mean, that's... <laughs> yeah. In 1990, he was arrested for aiding and abetting a prostitution ring. Again, doesn't mean he couldn't be telling the truth yeah. about anti-gravity. Uh, this is reduced to felony pandering. Yeah, no, his background is weird. There is definitely lots of red flags all over. I'm just saying the way he comes across in the thing, you're just like, man, I really want to believe this yeah. guy. Like, it's <laughs> well, like, he's under- like that good. But then you look more in the details, you're like, I don't know, man. This sounds kind of crazy. I think if he's going to be a person who would lie under oath, he'll lie on camera too. Because, yeah, during trial and under oath for this prostitution thing, he again claimed degrees from MIT and Caltech. I'm pretty sure they would have records of those. That's so. His argument, I think, is that the, you know they've erased him from these things, and he oh. has some friends that. <laughs> I'm sorry, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he has friends that saw him there at the time, but you know, the FBI or the secret government agents, they they're trying to erase him from these things and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's all shady, and there definitely seems to be some weird lying going on with some of that stuff and so's credentials but there was one thing the only thing that makes me question is apparently he described some kind of like hand sensor thing he's like when i went in there they had to do this hand sensor thing and he kind of described it and drew it or something apparently 30 years ago or something and everyone's like what that doesn't exist after total recall came out (laughs) because that's true it's right around the time total recall came out but so it might have been that and then apparently that eventually comes out and someone's like hey was it this and he's like yeah that's it again that could either just he saw it somewhere else someone else described it to him he heard about it somehow and it wasn't that secret of a thing and uh, no one had seen it and he, it's very easy for him to go yeah yeah that's the thing i was talking right, about you know right so that part does stick out but yeah the rest of his background definitely shady i'm just saying the way he comes across i'm like this guy really believes i think what he's saying and i don't know if it makes it true but 
he comes across like <laughs> I want to watch that. Like the Flat Earth documentary is on, on Netflix is really fun to watch because the people who are into it are so fucking into it, and it's yeah. the whole social. You know, yeah, it's their, it is it's a fascinating life. study in sort of mentality. Yeah. Um, hey, you know what? It's also a hard thing to navigate to. What is that? Flowers. Oh, if you're a bee. Yeah. Well, it depends. There are ways. How do there are ways to help. How could they possibly? Well, there's do that? there's the aroma. There's the sight. There's the, the uh, taste, but there's also electricity in the air. Oh, Dominic Clark and Heather Whitney from the University of Bristol. Who sent in this story, by the way, Andy? This was uh, sent in. Once. They've shown that bumblebees can sense the electric field that surrounds a flower. They can even learn to distinguish between fields produced by different floral shapes, or use them to work out whether a flower has been recently visited by other bees. Flowers aren't just visual spectacles and smelly beacons. They are also electric billboards, according to this National Geographic article. It was sent by Paul Muxworthy. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Paul. This is, by the way, if you want to send us stories, probablyscience at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at probablyscience or Facebook slash probablyscience. This is a big finding, says Daniel Roberts, who led the study. Nobody postulated the idea that bees could be sensitive to the electric field of a flower. Scientists have, however, known about the electric side of pollination since the 60s, though it's rarely discussed. As you never be- saw electric pollination, man? <laughs> they were the shit. As, as, bees fly- <laughs> as bees fly through the air, they bump into charged particles from dust to small molecules. The friction of these microscopic collisions strips electrons from the bee surface, and they typically end up with a positive charge. Flowers, on the other hand, tend to have a negative charge, at least on clear days. The, hmm. Why clear days? I don't know. The flowers themselves are electrically earthed, but the air around them carries a voltage of around 100 volts for every meter above the ground. The positive charge that accumulates around the flower induces a negative charge in its petals. Makes okay. sense. Yeah. When the positively charged bees arrive at the negatively charged flower, sparks don't fly, <clears throat> but <laughs> pollen does. We found some video showing that the pollen literally jumps from the flower to the bee as the bee approaches. Even before it's landed, says Roberts. Uh, the bee may fly over to the flower, but at close quarters, the flower also flies to the bees. This is old news. As far back as the 70s, pollinators, botanists suggested that electric forces enhance the attraction between pollen and pollinators. Some even show that if you sprinkle pollen over a mobilized bee, some of the falling grains will veer off course and stick to the insects. Okay. But Robert isn't a botanist. He's a sensory biologist. He studies how animals perceive the world around them. When he came across the electric world's bees of flowers, the first question that sprang to mind was, does the bee know anything about this process? Amazingly, no one had asked the questions, much less answered it. We read all the papers, says Roberts. We even had one translated from the Russian, the dastardly Russians. (laughs) But no one had made that intellectual leap. So he teamed up with a physicist, Clark, and Whitney, the uh, the biologist, and created e-flowers, Artificial purple top blooms with designer electric fields. Today's episode is brought to you by E Flower. <laughs> Artificial purple top blooms with designer electric fields. For a free E Flower, <laughs> one month trial, go to eflowers.com slash probably. That's once again. Artificial put. Um, when bumblebees could choose between charged flowers that carried a sugary liquid or chargeless flowers that yielded a bitter one, they soon learned to visit the charged ones with 81% accuracy. If none of the flowers were charged, the bees lost the ability to pinpoint the sugary rewards. Wow. But that's not all. The bees can do more than just tell if the electric field is there. They can discriminate between different fields' shapes, which in turn depend on the shape of a flower's petals and how easily they conduct electricity. 
Clark and Whitney visualize these patterns by spraying, spraying flowers with positively charged and brightly colored particles. You can see the results in this article, which we'll link to at probablyscience.com. Each flower had been sprayed on its right half, and the rectangular boxes show the color of the particles. So you can see, like, there's sort of purple or yellow particles, and you can see them sort of showing the field pattern around the flower. Yeah. The bees can sense these patterns. They learn to tell the difference between an e-flower with an evenly spread voltage and one with a field like a bullseye with 70% accuracy. Damn. That's pretty accurate. Yeah. It's clever bees. Uh, bees can also use this electrical information to bolster what their other senses are telling them. The team trained bees to discriminate between two e-flowers that came in very slightly different shades of green. They managed it, but it took 35 visits to reach an accuracy of 80%. If the team added differing electric fields to the flowers... They hit the same benchmark within just 24 visits. Still a lot um, of visits. It's a, it's a lot of visits, but still sig- statistically significant. Yeah. They don't know how it registers the electric fields yet, but they think that the field probably p- produces small forces that move some of the bee's body parts, maybe the hairs, in the same way that a rub balloon makes your hair stand on end. Perhaps a charged flower provides a bee with detectable tugs and shoves. And the bees, in turn, change the charge of whatever flower they land upon the, by around 25 millivolts. This change starts in just before the bee lands, which shows that it's nothing to do with the bee physically disturbing the flower. It lasts for just under two minutes, which is longer than uh, the bee typically spends on the flower. So that can also maybe let other bees know that a flower has recently been visited. Oh. It's like this shit all just works out somehow. Fucking clever bees. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, the signals could either be honest or dishonest, depending on the flower as well. Flower, oh, flowers can change these fields, apparently, but it takes a minute or two to do so. Uh, the, oh, sorry, they can change... Flowers, so flowers change the signals from the, fla- from the flower to the other ones, like the smell and the pattern, mm-hmm. but it takes a little bit of time. But electric fields change instantaneously, which provides useful, immediate information. Robert thinks the signals could either be honest or dishonest, depending on the flower. Those that carpet a field and require multiple visits from pollinators will evolve to be truthful because they cannot evolve to deceive their pollinators, or Ford rather. But bees are good learners, and if they repeatedly visit an empty flower, they'll quickly avoid an entire patch. Worse still, they'll communicate with their hive mates, and the entire colony will seek fresh pastures. This but, reminds me, if you're on an island that only has... Every flower can either t- only tell the truth or only tell lies, and there's two flowers, but you can only ask one of them if they've been pollinated... What are you supposed to ask that flower? Oh no, this is one of those riddle things, right? This is uh. Ask wait, is it you ask it? If I ask the other flower if he's been pollinated, if you've been pollinated, what will he tell me? Is that what it is? Or it's like no, what are you supposed to ask? Do you ask right? Do you like ask them what the other one would tell you? you ask, yeah. yeah, you ask the other one. If I ask the other one, has have you been pollinated? What would they say? And then that's the right or the wrong. I can't think about it right then now. Then you kill that fucking robot. Right. Okay, so bees are smart. Uh, if they're so smart, we're not going to teach them to stop committing mass suicide in pools. <laughs> they love to die in pools. It's that There's electrical that charge, man. They're trying to, to get do. a lot of them in there. And... I've never been in a pool in California without at least five dead bees in it. <laughs> and like three bees halfway to death that just like dove in the water and couldn't get out. Maybe they love swimming and that's where the bees bury their dead. Okay. Like the way you'd like sprinkle someone's ashes over a favorite. Yeah, it's like a Viking funeral. (laughs) Yeah, that's their Valhalla or whatever (laughs) pool. Sail safe, good bee. (laughs) God be with the. (laughs) Hey, KT, where can our listeners find you? 
and find out about where you're going to be performing and so on? Uh, on Instagram, at KT Tatara, or Twitter. I don't use it that much, but uh, yeah, there. Or uh, Yeah, yeah Twitter's kind of it. a... Wasteland now, isn't it? What do we all do? Nah, it's yeah. the only one I still... Uh, Sorry. <laughs> it's the only one I'm any good at. <laughs> Bad at pictures. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's it. Yeah, I feel like I don't even go on Facebook, really, either. Just, yeah. I like looking at pictures. Yeah, it's, it's easier. <laughs> yeah, I, for, there was a while when Facebook was, like, a negative thing in my life, and then it suddenly just, like, I stopped checking it, it just, yeah it just i just stopped checking it. i mean i'll look at the news stories i mostly just look at news stories like on on twitter and then but like so as far as like social interaction or something like that it's all tiktok guys everyone's on tiktok <laughs> oh <laughs> you guys can watch us live on twitch uh playing our video games um do it uh so you can find kt mostly on instagram you can find us on do we even have an instagram you know we really should we, but we stopped taking pictures when we record like Five years ago, we used to take pictures of everything. Yeah, we used to show up in pictures and we don't anymore. <laughs> it's a back to the future thing. So, uh, you can find us on Twitter, as we said before. You can find us probablyscience.com. Email us probablyscience at gmail.com. You can find us individually on the hateful Twitter at yeah. Andy T. Wood and at Matt Kirshen. And Instagram, Andy T. Wood, too, if you want to find Yeah, Andy does Instagram properly. I, I will put up one picture maybe every six months. I only do stories. Like, I, I've only posted like three non story things in the last two years, I think. So, it's. So, go and follow Andy's stories and you can find out everywhere he's recently swum. Yeah. <laughs> I don't do that anymore, I swear. <laughs> yeah. No, you do it well. You do Instagram well. Yeah, I, don't. I don't know. I'm, I'm very bad at it. Uh, do that. Find, find Andy. Find KT. Maybe find me. Yeah. I'm going to be in New York next week as well. I'm doing a few shows around there. Uh, I can't remember exactly which ones, but I will tweet out when I've got a fun show. Uh, oh, and I'm going to be, I'm sorry, uh, at Pickathon. I'm seeing uh, this Sunday. Ah, is that the fourth Northwestern. Let's get up there. August. 4th. Yeah, that's Sunday. I'll be emceeing. I'm not sure which stages, but if you're at Pickathon in Portland, um, just tweet at me and we'll we'll meet up. Yeah, it's great bands. Nathaniel Whitelift's going to be there. A bunch of other great music and comedy acts. So thank you, KT. Thank you, listeners. Yep. Thank you, Great Courses Plus. Great. Thegreatcoursesplus.com/slash/probably. Check it out. Do it. See you next week.